Red River is on the rise, and residents of Fargo, Grand Forks, and beyond are stacking sandbags to fend back the waters. We'll get an update on the current flood status and what to expect in the days to come from the National Weather Service in Grand Forks. And the first-ever State of the Birds report has been issued by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Carol Henderson of the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources stops by to tell us how Minnesota's birds are measuring up. We'll get the river view and the bird's eye view of the weather today. Welcome to Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Hello again, everybody, and thanks for joining us. I'm Stephen John, sitting in for Paul Hutner. But, of course, our other jet streaming weather wizards are with me today. Dr. Mark Seeley, professor of climatology and meteorology at the University of Minnesota, and NPR meteorologist Craig Edwards. Welcome back, gentlemen. Good to be with you, Stephen. We knew that March was going to bring some wild weather. Have we got that going on coast to coast and uh, particularly up in the upper Midwest with the Red River flooding going on? Quite was, a story to tell. I was just going to say, we have had quite a week for uh, weather and, and natural phenomenon. Uh, okay, first off, the uh, the Dakotas getting hit on both ends the last couple of days with the blizzard and the floods. Unbelievable. Yes, and then uh, they had a tornado just west of Yankton uh, on top of everything else. So. They've been getting hit with a little bit of everything out there. Craig, have you seen this kind of stuff happen this much in one short span before? Isn't this something going on here? I was saying that uh, you know the next thing we're going to see is a volcano erupt and, or an earthquake. And I says, as soon as I said that, we had Mountain Redoubt erupt. So how about that? Blizzards in, in western uh, South Dakota and floods going on. Is this a bad time for uh, to start advertising tourist information for the Dakotas, I think. Yeah, it's been quite a week indeed. The Red River of the North, of course, is the main story, has been for a while now, and it continues to rise. In Minnesota, Governor Tim Pawletti has announced that the state's emergency operations center in St. Paul is now activated in response to increasing flood preparedness activities being undertaken by state emergency management officials in counties adjacent to the river, the Army Corps of Engineers and others. North Dakota has received a presidential disaster declaration due to severe uh, flooding. Uh, North Dakota's Department of Emergency Services is coordinating, of course, that state's efforts. For the latest developments, we're joined by Mark Ewens from the National Weather Service in Grand Forks. Mark, thanks for joining us on Jet Streaming today. Well, you're quite welcome. Good to be here. Give us the very latest on the situation on the Red River. Well, we've got a big spring flood going on and a little early this year, which is what makes it all the more interesting and perhaps a little scarier because we typically don't see water levels of this magnitude until we're into April. The river is in the major flood mode, especially in the southern half of the basin, Wapiton, Abercrombie, Fargo, Sabin. Uh, there's also some major flooding up at High Landing, Minnesota, and Roseau. A lot of that has to do with ice jams as well as rain that fell over the last couple of days. Red and Fargo's up to just over 35 feet now, 35.09, and here in uh, East Grand Forks, we are at 42. Yeah, you've been a busy man in the last uh, week or 10 days, I'm sure. Yeah, the river's just, uh, we're, we're getting every point to go into flood nearly simultaneously, which is also a little bit of a, of a stress as well, because normally the flood progresses in some semblance of order from south to north, so really climbing rapidly. But this is a really good time to remind uh, the uh, folks checking in the jet streaming is that the Red River of the North flows from the south to the north. Now that creates an issue, issue doesn't it, with where uh, the colder temperatures, where it's draining, uh, Lake Winnipeg, is there still a lot of ice and snow uh, up in Canada where the river ultimately uh, ends up? 
Right, but since the river channel is so flat and so narrow, that's actually a larger concern because even though it may be well frozen to the north, it's, there's a lot of ice in the river up and down the entire channel, especially after the very cold winter that we've had. I say very cold. It's not been a record cold winter. It's been a consistently cold winter, and so that has allowed the ice to become very thick on the rivers themselves. So the other issue is that the tributaries flow from the north or a northerly direction into the basin and then make a sharp turn into the red as they head that way. So everything tries to head north at the same time. Mm. Creating that backlog. And it gets a pool table we live on. It's flat. So in a mm. year like this where the ground is frozen, we've had the rain, we've had the snow melt, we've had a tremendous amount of overland flooding, more so than usual. And that makes it even more difficult because then water bypasses the river gauges. So it's very difficult to get an idea of exactly how much water is flowing over land. Mm-hmm. Say, Mark, uh, Mark Seeley here from uh, the University of Minnesota. I'm sure you've been asked this question, but um, I think our listeners might might be interested. You've been at this for quite a number of years, and in the context of everything happening this week, how is it playing out relative to what you thought and were discussing, oh, say, back in December or January? Thanks, Mark. Good to talk to you, too. It It's it's working up about as planned. Of course, the problem was selling the message because after the record December snowfalls, we had a fairly quiet January and February. So a lot of the snow that had piled up in December had started to settle, so people started to forget that we had all this snow. Plus, as you're well aware, we all have very short weather memories. They forgot about the record wet fall we had, forgetting that the ground was saturated. So we were telling people, this is going to melt, and it's not going to have any place to go but right into the river systems, and we're looking at severe flooding. We've had people tell us, well, they didn't believe us until it started to move, and now that there's water in places that didn't get it at 97, unfortunately it's panning out about as we expected. Yeah, Mark, this is Craig Edwards here. And you think back to 97, you think of the snow that was up to essentially rooftops in portions of the Red River Valley, and that was very good visual to get a clue on how bad it was going to be. But some of the comments I heard earlier this week was, as they did aerial surveys, they said, well, there's not as much snow out there, so we think we're going to be all right. But the, the information from the remote sensing center was talking about all of this moisture that was locked up in the top uh, six inches of the topsoil, that was going get, to get let loose by this thaw. So do you think that people were saying, well, there's not much snow, so it doesn't look like it's going to be as bad this year? Exactly right, Craig. Good to hear from you again. Glad to hear that you're keeping in the business and keeping honed with your skills. You're absolutely right. Uh, folks still who have lived here a long time use 97 as the benchmark. So there was a bit of excitement back in December when the snows first piled up, and, of course, a lot of references to 97 were made. But, again, by the time we got into middle of February when there wasn't much snow because it had settled, they were like, oh, okay, no big deal. And you're right. The, the, the folks down there in Chanhassen had done a bang-up job in, in being able to tell us exactly what was in the topsoil. I mean, we knew it from observations anyway. So, it, again, it was a hard sell to let people know that we're headed to this major event. They just were having a lot of difficulty in buying it because – they said, well, this is no 97. And we said, well, it's going to be different because every flood is different. Speaking of that, Mark, uh, one of the attributes you've alluded to uh, in your earlier remarks was, uh, you know, the earliness of this on the calendar. But then that has implications for perhaps looking at a prolonged or almost like an endurance contest <laughs> here, doesn't it? Is, are, aren't we going to see a moderate to major uh, flood uh, stage along points of the river 
but persist for a number of days? Yes, it's it's going to take a while for this water to work its way through the system because of the slope of the Red Basin. History as a guide tells us it will be the better part of four to six weeks before the water is finally all the way through the system and up to the north to our neighbors in Canada. And that's providing we don't receive any more significant precipitation. The downside is, and I'm sure Dr. Seeley can address this too, that we're in a La Nina situation, and that's part of the reason why the overall weather pattern across the, the plains, and especially the northern plains, has been so stormy. Historically, La Ninas bring colder, wetter winters that linger into the spring. And using a technique that's called compositing, where we go back and look at years that are synoptically weather-wise similar to the current year, we can kind of make an estimate of what the patterns are going to do into the future. And it's going to continue to be stormy, I would say, into April. So the threat of getting another big rain or snowstorm early in April as the crests are just nearing their peak from Grand Forks downstream is very real. Craig, you were going to ask a follow-up, I believe, just a little bit ago. One of the things that I get asked is, how is this cold weather now? Because usually you get a flood start and you got the mild temperatures and you, you can deal with that. But how is this cold weather that's going to last for about three or four days going to impact the runoff? You talked about the overland flooding uh, that it's hard to model. How is this cold weather going to be interpreted by the models and, and get a good handle as a river flows north toward Grand Rapids or Grand Forks? Well, it's initially not going to do much over the first day or two because obviously running water takes a lot colder temperatures than what we're seeing to freeze. It it will slow some of the smaller runoff, but just last evening we received a tremendous amount of rain across the Red River and Red Lakes Basin before it changed over to snow. And the snow is obviously going to melt as it falls into the areas where the water is moving. So that's not going to have much of an immediate effect other than putting more water into the system. Now, the runoff, say, from the urban areas will immediately come to a halt because it piles up there more. But in the open country where the water is moving, the effect is going to take some time to occur. So the runoff continues then under the snowpack as well. You've got that layer of water basically flowing under the ice that's not going to change right away. Probably by the time we get to the end of the week, the inflows will decrease. And the River Forecast Center actually has the ability now to kind of model that. They can go in and subjectively tweak the flows in the model to try to simulate what's happening in the real world. It's a dance. Say, Mark, uh, to wrap this up, I would appreciate you sharing thoughts on on, uh, this, well, at least perceived change in procedure this year, whereby you have a NOAA meteorologist or hydrologist on the scene uh, as far as documenting this flood and and personally delivering crest updates and the reason that you're making changes to these updates that's a I think that's a very prudent move I mean is that something you guys have thought about for for a time in terms of having people right there on the scene one of the real big lessons learned from 1997 was no matter how good your forecast or how good your outlooks are, if the people don't understand the information, then you might as well not have opened your mouth. In 97, we were talking about record flood, flooding like you've never seen before, water, devastation. We were using strong words, verbs, nouns. But unfortunately, uh, in the example of Grand Forks, people were hung up on an outlook value, and they took that number to heart. They ignored the words, and so we've learned that if you get out and you continue to indicate the uncertainty, if you really stress the the personal danger and try to get away from a specific value, as people like to have, people want to know, how high is the river going to get? If you say it's going to flood you, 
that tends to have more of an impact than giving a value that maybe they can't necessarily put into a concrete reference point. So having a meteorologist located with the emergency operations centers and dealing directly with the public and the other emergency management community goes a long way to ensuring the message is not lost in the numbers. Mark Ewens, thank you so much for taking time out of what is uh, obviously a busy time for you, watching the rising uh, Red River and all of the tributaries. Good luck, uh, as all eyes are on Fargo now, but uh, it's coming your way in Grand Forks next. So uh, uh, keep us posted. All right, Stephen, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to get on here. And just, again, it's, it's going to be a long-duration event. So we want to keep the, your listeners in this area abreast as to what's going on. It's going to be busy. Late last week, Secretary of the Interior Ken Salazar released the very first State of the Birds report in the United States. It documents the decline of bird populations in many areas due to habitat loss, invasive species, and other factors. At the same time, it provides examples of how sustained habitat conservation and other environmental efforts can reverse the decline of many bird species. Joining us to discuss this first ever report and to give us the spring migration forecast for Minnesota's feathered friends is Carol Henderson, longtime non-game wildlife specialist at the Department of Natural Resources here in Minnesota. Carol, thanks for coming back this spring to visit us on Jet Streaming again. Oh, you're sure welcome. Thank you. Give us a little bit more info on this first State of the Birds report. What, what, what's it all about? The State of the Birds report is a national look at what's happening with birds' populations across the country. And in the case of Minnesota, we got a head start on this several years ago when we did a planning process uh, with a report coming out called Tomorrow's Habitat. We were looking to the future. We were looking at species in decline and looking for ways that we could then invest in species that were uh, in trouble for various reasons. And so I think the State of the Birds report is a good way to look at the big picture of what's happening and fit in what's happening in Minnesota and then how we can take constructive actions in Minnesota. And actually some of the things that have been happening here, like the passage of the sales tax last fall and the investment of funds to the Lassard Outdoor Heritage Council, this will invest in habitat projects that will help a whole array of wildlife species across Minnesota, uh, everything from songbirds to uh, the larger species, moose, and so forth. So uh, this is a, a big step forward because some of the problems will take big investments in habitat. Other problems take more specific actions to address problems for a unique species. Here in Minnesota, uh, Carol, uh, can you share with us what, what specific species uh, over the last decades have we seen uh, decline the most, or, or do you have that sorted out? Well, it's actually sorted out um, by... Uh, species based on breeding bird surveys done through the Fish and Wildlife Service and by other types of surveys. Probably one of the biggest categories of decline lies with the prairie and grassland species. Everything from marbled godwits and prairie chickens to upland sandpipers, uh, dick thistles, bobolinks. These birds need extensive grasslands and in many cases those are converted to row crops. So they are left primarily with uh, private preserves like those owned by the Nature Conservancy and grasslands and, and prairie uh, preserves owned and managed as wildlife management areas or waterfowl production areas uh, by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. So we have these reservoirs of populations that are still left, uh, but it's certainly much less than it has been in the past, and their numbers are being monitored. Other birds that 
uh, are in decline that we may be acquainted with uh, are things like the red-headed woodpecker and even the flicker. The flicker used to be one of our most common backyard birds, mm -hmm. but because of the clean, heavily uh, managed backyards that we now have, flickers don't do so well because they eat ants on the ground. And where you're using lots of chemicals, you remove ants, you remove a lot of the foods that they normally would have used. So they're much less common as well. And then we also have uh, a variety of forest birds that we're concerned about um, and birds that occur in, in wetlands as well, things like the, the bittern. And each of these requires a little di different uh, approach in terms of uh, strategic actions, and some of them need just basic information. Like later today, uh, we're going to be putting a satellite transmitter on a golden eagle uh, that's been rehabilitated at the Raptor Center. It was injured last fall. And for many years, we've had a few golden eagles wintering in Minnesota, and no one ever knew quite what that meant. We didn't think they were coming from out west, but we didn't know really where they were coming from. Uh, and it's not a listed species. In fact, it's not listed on this report because people really don't know much about it. Well, this one is going to have a satellite transmitter on its back when it's released, and we'll be able to follow it back to its nesting grounds. And my own theory is that they're nesting in remote regions of northern Ontario, where it is a listed species. And so this will help tie together uh, those little mysteries of where the birds are coming from and then how we can uh, deal with their management uh, as a wintering species, but not a, a, a breeding species. I was noticing in the last couple of weeks when the weather turned more spring-like that there was this influx of birds just showing all up over the place in my backyard, and they seem to be all getting along. Now, they, they may, there may be only a half a dozen species, but are birds territorial? Do they say, well, we can all get along together, or, or do they tend to, to say, well, I'll, I'll stay here for a while, but you other birds are making it tough for me? Do, do they have their territory, or do, can, can they all work together and get along? Uh, well, it, it depends on the season. <laughs> mm -hmm. For example, you might see many cardinals at your feeder in the winter because the birds are not breeding and they're simply moving to the areas where they can find the food they need to survive. Once spring comes, you're going to see those numbers drop because at that point, the cardinals start defending territories against other pairs of cardinals. So the um, same thing happens with uh, Canada geese and trumpeter swans. You'll see them in large aggregations in wintering regions. And then when spring comes, when the hormones start flowing, then they uh, go back to their territories and defend their turf against uh, other pairs of birds. Carol, it used to be that uh, the first robin of spring was really a harbinger of warmer weather. But the last few winters, I've seen uh, rather large flocks of robins in my uh, South Minneapolis neighborhood wintering uh, mm -hmm. there. And so uh, what's changed for the robins that they're staying here and they are no longer that uh, that uh, early arrival that we are, were used to so many years ago. Well, this year we had incredible numbers of people calling the DNR wanting to know what's going on with the robins because they didn't fly south. We had reports of bluebirds all winter in some areas uh, and even morning doves that were staying all winter. And I think in some cases people are doing more bird feeding. So some of the birds are toughing it out, just hanging out at the bird feeders and getting enough food to survive. In the case of the robins, they may also be benefiting from fruiting shrubs and fruiting trees that we plant, like crab apples, uh, hawthorn, some of the different uh, vines like bittersweet, um, highbush cranberry. And so they're able to utilize those fruits all winter long and then stay in sheltered areas like in the city and in backyards. So we are seeing some changes in the, the tendency of, of at least some of the robins to stay here all winter. So it's not quite the harbinger of spring it used mm -hmm. to be. Although you can tell that, you know, they sense the changing seasons. They're becoming much more active. They're singing much more. And 
it's a real treat to just step out the front door or the back door in the morning and just listen because you won't have to listen too many seconds before you'll hear the cardinal singing or the robin singing. And it's a real uh, delightful time of year to get out and enjoy uh, the birds. What are some other uh, early arrivals that we're going to be seeing now the next uh, few days or next few weeks? Well, the, among the birds that come back very early are the waterfowl species. So if you have any wetlands nearby, you'll see wood ducks coming in, hooded mergansers, uh, a nice variety of ducks. And, of course, the Canada geese are back in force. They're already on their nesting territories. Uh, and actually, the, the winner of the early nesting prize goes to the great horned owl that starts nesting in late January. And they already have fluffy young ones that are probably over a foot tall. And they have this uh, habit of jumping out of their nest or climbing out of their nest and then being found by people all by themselves on the ground. And people think they've been orphaned and they get turned into the raptor center. Well, actually, they're still being fed by the parents. So if you find one of these fluffy owl chicks on the ground, the parents are nearby. They know where the kid is. Uh, just <laughs> leave it there. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Carol, uh, back to uh, you were making a point about uh, the restoration and enhancement of habitat. And I wondered if, uh, as a state and through the work that you do, uh, we, we begin to do this, will that uh, have almost immediate benefit or does it take a few years for the populations, if you will, uh, to start to go back to those habitats? Or is it almost immediate? Uh, for many species, it is almost immediate. Uh, back in the mid-90s, uh, we wrote the book, Lakescaping for Wildlife and Water Quality. We showed people how they could restore their lakeshore shoreline from just bare bluegrass and, and no emergent vegetation to a, a native lakeshore with native plants, native wildflowers. And if you use seedlings and put in a planting uh, to restore a buffer zone on your shoreline, you can have this huge uh, response, even in the first summer, with many native butterflies coming back to your yard, butterflies you probably haven't seen for many years. And that's something that people are really surprised by, that they didn't know those butterflies were ever around. And then you'll get goldfinches showing up when they're feeding in the native uh, flower uh, seed heads after the plants are done blooming. And so uh, even with planting trees and shrubs, uh, many of the shrubs will start producing fruits within the first, say, three to five years. And uh, some of the other larger trees will obviously take longer. But the the important thing is you don't have to wait a lifetime to see a response. You may, you'll see some responses with uh, perennial wildflowers, for example, the first year with, with shrubs. You'll see them within the first several years. So it's definitely a wonderful investment in any way you can put back native plants, uh, whether it's on a lakeshore or even a piece of your yard. If you can reduce your lawn, put in the flowers, you'll get the birds, you'll get the butterflies, you'll have uh, a wonderful... Uh, source of entertainment on your own uh, backyard. Yeah, this is Craig Edwards. Now, this water that we have all over the state, is that going to have any impact? That we've, we've got essentially water standing in the northern half of Minnesota. Is that going to have any impact on the migratory situation for the birds this uh, spring? Well, for the waterfowl species, this exposes a lot of uh, shallow wetlands uh, that they might not otherwise be able to use. And uh, many of the birds, as they fly north, uh, for example, one of them is called the lesser scop, the, the bluebill. Uh, those populations have gone down significantly over the past couple of decades. And those are among the birds that keep feeding as they're moving north. And they need to build up their food reserves, especially the hens, so that when they get back north, they're ready to uh, lay a large clutch of eggs and raise their young ones. And this may expose areas where they can find invertebrates for feeding in other places where the, uh, ordinarily they wouldn't have water. 
Um, obviously, that's a very short-term benefit, and by the time the birds move on up to the Arctic for nesting, um, the waters would be receding here. Uh, in some areas of uh, Minnesota, the wetlands have been very shallow, nearly dry, and this will help re restore some of the uh, water levels in those wetlands. But obviously in the far northwest, you're dealing with such huge amounts of water that it's much more than even <laughs> any bird would need. So um, obviously uh, the wetlands are, are an important source of habitat for many species, and this will recharge some of those wetlands. And actually the more wetlands we have, the less quickly water flows off the land and causes flood problems. So any work that's being done to help restore and uh, plant uh, grasslands and, re and restore wetlands is a big help in averting some of those long-term flooding problems. Also on the subject of migratory birds, Carol, you've been watching birds for a long time. How has migratory patterns changed as our region maybe has expanded more urban areas, larger urban areas? Uh, some of the birds respond well to backyard habitats. And uh, one time I had someone say, well, I didn't give any money to the non-game checkoff this year because I spent $200 on bird seed last year. So that's my <laughs> contribution <laughs> to wildlife. And uh, I really had to think about that. And, you know, we have uh, over 200 different kinds of birds uh, living and nesting in Minnesota, but only about three dozen at most come to bird feeders, and those are the most common and adaptable species. And so when it comes to, like, the state of the birds, the birds that need the wetlands, the grasslands, the natural forest lands, those are the birds that are benefited by the, the state agencies, the federal agencies, and private organizations like the Nature Conservancy to make a difference for the birds that don't come to the backyards. And so, you know, it's important to remember the checkoff at tax time. It helps the birds. It helps the wildlife. And remember these other conservation organizations that deal with habitat as well, that they all make a difference. Uh, and uh, if you're looking for constructive ways to help wildlife, you can purchase a, a duck stamp, a waterfowl stamp, because that all goes for habitat. And uh, some of these patterns do keep changing. Uh, some birds migrate farther north now. They come north earlier because of uh, warming. In fact, uh, I was going to say we one area we wrestle with in the horticultural industries in this state is that uh, more and more uh, landowners are wanting to go to, say, Zone 5 plants. Right. You know, those that are more accustomed to southerly latitudes. So that has a habitat implication, obviously, for bird species, especially up the Mississippi River Valley and the Twin Cities metro area. We see more and more people experimenting with Zone 5 plants. Right, and I know that the plant hardiness zone maps have been altered over the last few years because mm -hmm. those warmer zones have shifted north. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the birds that are moving north are among the more common species, and their ranges are extending northward, like, say, cardinals, red-bellied woodpeckers. They're moving well north into the state. I think in terms of uh, climate changes, the birds that are more at risk in Minnesota are the boreal forest species, the ones that are just up in the Arrowhead region. We just have a little sliver of their North American range in the state. And if warming trends continue, that southern limit of their distribution for things like the, the gray jay, for example, um, blackback woodpecker and uh, boreal chickadee, these are going to move farther north up closer to the Canadian border. And, and those are the ones that we would see decline here, uh, although they would still have extensive habitat in Canada. 
Uh, Carol, your book on nest box building has uh, influenced generations of uh, people who've gone out and tried to uh, attract more birds to their to their backyard and their wild uh, areas near their home. Woodworking for Wildlife, uh, it's being reissued? Yes. Uh, this was a pamphlet I wrote the first time in 1979, mm. and then it came out as a book or booklet in 1985, and then it was republished in 1992, and now I've spent three years redoing Woodworking for Wildlife, and it will be out within one month now. Uh, it's at the printers, and it's available through minnesotasbookstore.com in St. Paul. Uh, it's going to sell for fifteen ninety-five, and all the royalties go back to the non-game wildlife program, so I'm not making money off it personally. Uh, but th- this has been a real passion because if you want to interest young people in nature to care about wildlife in the future, this is one of the ways you get them involved. You get them peeking in those little nest boxes, looking at a, a whole nest box full of little wood duck ducklings or little bluebirds that have just hatched, uh, those kids are going to be hooked for life. And so one of the best things you can do is to uh, figure out what kind of habitat you've got on your property, whether it's backyard or prairie or woodland or whatever. See what kind of birdhouses are a good fit for that habitat. And then work with your family, your kids, your grandchildren, or youth group, and, and build a box. And these have the nest box designs, but there's also a lot of information in there that's really important, more than ever, about how to keep birds and animals that are problems out of those boxes. Keep the raccoons out, keep the sparrows out, the starlings out, the house cats. Uh, These are things that can just wipe out nest boxes. And a lot of people get all excited about nest boxes in the spring, and then they never go back. They don't know what happened, and it probably becomes uh, a death trap for the birds. So the only way that birdhouses really work well is if you make a commitment to go back and take a peek, maybe once a week, through the summer, and that's where all the fun is. That's where you take the kids out, you show them what's in there, and that's where the benefits come to the birds. And and uh, so you can enjoy bluebirds. Uh, you can enjoy sometimes owls. I've had people say they put up an owl nesting box, and they had one there within a day. And, mm. and bluebirds, I've I had one person call in and say he put up a Peterson bluebird house, and he had bluebirds there within 15 minutes. Oh, it's almost like they've been waiting for the box. <laughs> and so these are designs that have been, Checked out by people with thousands of nest boxes in the field. They work well, and I've checked with people all over North America to get the very best designs and instructions. And it's going to have over 300 color photographs. And I think it's going to be a nice opportunity just to teach people about nature because there's natural history information, but then there's that hands-on element of how you can personally get involved with helping wildlife. Well, you've been involved with helping uh, our uh, feathered friends for many years. Thank you, Carol, for all your hard work uh, at the DNR, and we appreciate uh, you coming on Jet Streaming today. Okay, thank you very much, and I uh, hope your listeners also remember that loon on the tax forum to help wildlife in the future it's, as well. It's check, chickadee checkoff time here. Carol Henderson, non-game wildlife specialist at the Minnesota DNR. It's time for the website of the week. Craig Edwards? Well, let's go back to our NOAA website. And you, I was just looking at this site, and it's all colored with different colors of events and advisories and, and drama going on in the weather. And it's uh, www.crh, was the central region headquarters, crh.noaa.gov slant crh slant. So uh, you go there, you get the uh, picture of the central portion of the country, and you can just burrow down and find out every weather element that uh, you intend to, to gain uh, interest from. There's a lot going on at this time of year. 
That's for sure. What about the weather word of the week, Mark Seeley? Well, we thought appropriately enough, Stephen, a hydrograph might be a a good word to bring to our listeners' attention this week. In fact, it's on the NOAA site that Craig just alluded to that you can find uh, hydrographs for the uh, Red River, which is in flood stage up and down uh, the border area between North Dakota and Minnesota right now. A hydrograph is simply a graphical depiction of the stage uh, flow, either elevation or uh, a volume of flow that's going by a point on the watershed. Mm-hmm. And it also is very descriptive the, uh, the way NOAA uses it in terms of what flood stage is and how many feet above flood stage designates a moderate or major flood event. So you can look at those kinds of things. In fact, I might add further that this time of year, many of the hydrographs are being updated hour by hour, day by day. So they're they're ever-changing because of the uh, vast amounts of runoff being generated. Never a dull moment, that's for sure. Don't forget, uh, if you would like to contact us, uh, we are always happy to hear listener feedback. You can drop us a line anytime, pose your question to our weather team. Just go to minnesotapublicradio.org and find the Jet Streaming page on the program's Dropbox and go to Contact Jet Streaming on our page to submit your questions online. And don't forget, too, our second annual Severe Weather Forum is coming up. We had a great time last year, a packed house, and if you missed it, here's your chance to meet the Jet Streaming crew and get your severe weather questions answered in person. We're even going to have a few special guests join us, too. Stay tuned. We'll have more information coming up about that in the next few weeks. Another great show. Thanks to Mark and uh, Craig and Carol Henderson and uh, Mark Ewing's up in Grand Forks. We appreciate it. Jet streaming here. That wraps the show. For uh, producers Patty Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle and technical whiz Rick Hibzinski, I'm Stephen John. Be sure to keep your ear here to jet streaming and your weather eye on the sky. All right.